0: Good morning again. I normally don't eat candy when I'm preaching, but I have a cough drop so that I don't continue to cough. Um, So let's pray. Let's, Let's begin with prayer. Father, we love you and we're so grateful to you for this time that we have to sing out to you. Now we pray, would you speak to our hearts and would you enable us to understand your word? We grow and change and draw so much closer to you when we understand you and what you said. So we pray for that, that you would enlighten our minds through the power of your spirit to know the truth and that the truth would set some free in this room that have never been free and for the rest of us that it would help us not to uh, be in bondage to lies or deception. Uh, We pray against the enemy Would you uh, do a powerful work here this morning so that we could bring you glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. On March 25th, 2019, not even uh, four years ago, uh, a British Airways uh, airplane was uh, scheduled to leave uh, the London City Airport And head east to Dusseldorf, Germany. Has anybody ever been there? Right? Yes, a number of people have been there. Uh, If if you're familiar with geography, it's not that far. It's about an hour and ten minute flight, almost straight east, right? You just fly over. Uh, But this day was different on March 25th, 2019. Not a usual day for uh, pilots, And this pilot instead flew 525 miles off course, taking everybody with him to Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, And uh, Scotland is not in Germany. Just in case anybody in here, you're like, is this Kansas? This is not Kansas. This is east here. Uh, And so all the passengers and he and, and the two pilots, they flew to Scotland. It was kind of like Home Alone 2, but every passenger was Kevin McAllister. Uh, no one was where they were supposed to be, and, uh, and the, a big question was raised, I mean, how do you not know you're in the wrong place? How do you not know you're going the wrong direction? Uh, you know, you would have the question, like, at some point, how did these talented, trained uh, air pilots not know the sun was not in the correct spot on the planet, like, you know, as in regard to the planet? And uh, so What happened? Why did they end up so far away from their intended destination? Well, it turned out they had an incorrect flight plan. And not only them, but the tower that was involved in directing them had the same incorrect flight plan. Which means the whole time they were flying, they were convinced they were going the right way. And the people that were supposed to help them were convinced they're going the right way. It wasn't until they landed that they realized... J.K., this is not where we're supposed to be. Um, has that ever happened to you? Not have you ever flown to the wrong city. I doubt, I doubt any of you have done that recently. But uh, have you ever been headed in one direction, convinced you were going the right way, only to find out that you are farther from where you really needed to be than when you started? You, you only found out later that you were going the wrong direction. I know I have. And uh, whenever somebody is headed in the wrong direction, whenever they think something is true when it's not true, they think this will be better. It will be better for their life. It will be better for their relationships. It will be better for them in any way. Whenever somebody thinks that what they're currently doing is better, What they need is to have something else or somebody else change their mind to reveal the lie and deception and to help them understand the truth. Because once you know that you're headed in the wrong direction, you can turn around. You can head in the right direction. And the Bible calls that repentance. There's a a word and a theme used in Scripture often, this idea of repentance, this idea of changing the mind, and that's going to be our habit of grace for this year, for 2023. Uh, for a few weeks, we're going to think about this, this habit in the Christian life, this gift that God has given us to repent. You know, Jesus began his ministry by preaching that everyone should repent. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he wasn't the only one that preached about repentance, this idea of repent. John the Baptist, that was his main sermon. That was his one sermon. I would love to have one sermon that I get to preach all. Now, I don't want to end up like John. But I would love to have this. That's not where I'm headed, hopefully. Um, No pun, the headed thing. Anyway. (laughs) Sorry, that was this is not scripted. That was a genuine. I apologize. Forgive me. Uh, So John the Baptist would preach about repentance. He would tell people repent and be baptized. And the reason why they did the baptism thing, if you're familiar with John the Baptist and baptism, baptism existed before the New Testament and John the Baptist. It wasn't called baptism like we use the word baptism. It was a ritual cleansing that the Jews had to make themselves clean. Before you can go into the tabernacle at one point, and then eventually the temple, you had to be cleaned. You couldn't be defiled, and there would be a physical ritual cleaning that you would go through before you can go into the temple. And so the Jews created this it's kind of like a spa slash bath slash mini pool. It's called a mikvah, and it has an entrance and an exit, and there's a wall in between with a little rotating circle. If you go to Israel, you can find these placed throughout Israel. Uh, they've, they've, uh, they've uncovered some of them, and what you would do if you were Jewish before you go to the temple, you would go into this mikvah, and you would, you would be in certain clothing and not in certain clothing, and you would go in, you'd cleanse, and you'd come out the other side, and you would be ritually clean, and that's, that's how you did it. It was symbolic to say, before you can approach the Lord, you cannot be undefiled, and you have to make sure that you are not defiled. You have to be what's called righteous. You had to be right before God. You had to be clean before God. Well, John the Baptist told people, you need to repent And there's a different kind of, baptism means immersion, there's a different kind of immersion that I want to do in the river. I want to do in the Jordan River. This is you saying, you know what, that mikvah way of cleaning, that's not going to do it. What we need to do is change our mind about what God says about our sin, how to be clean before him, and righteousness to do what's right. We need him because judgment's coming. You have sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's coming, and we have to be ready. So John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord by preaching one sermon, repent. Change your mind about sin, righteousness, and judgment, and be baptized symbolically to show that you are doing this. It was ceremonial back then. These things were very meaningful to them as a people. Our culture doesn't have as many and as, a, as much significance in these rituals in general. Their culture, there was no, you know, social media and TV and all these other things. Everything was so meaningful. Ever, people were a lot slower than, in, in one sense, and better, that they would take time in these ceremonies to say, I'm committing to this and I want other people to know, so they would get baptized. So Jesus preached the same sermon. He told people, repent, repent. In Mark chapter 6, when he sent the disciples out in pairs, it says that they went preaching repentance. They told people, you need to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Judgment's coming. It is now. Today is the day. Turn, change your mind about these things. Uh, Really, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Change your mind about these things. uh, And Jesus was calling them to salvation, basically. He was calling them to turn away in their mind. It begins in the mind. I've said before, and this actually isn't true, the word repentance doesn't mean to turn around. It actually means to change your mind. But uh, the idea was it resulted in changing your direction. But he called people to change your mind about sin, righteousness, and judgment, really so that you could be saved. And after you're saved, you still need to repent. You still need to be changing your mind. We call it sanctification in the church. If you don't know what that is, it's just a fancy church word for continuing to grow and change, to become more like God, to become more like what he wants you to become. And so Jesus would, t- would preach this repentance. His disciples preach repentance. In Luke chapter 15, verse seven, he's giving this parable, a well-known parable. He says, I tell you, in the same way There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Jesus wanted them to understand repentance is essential to the gospel, to be saved. It's essential to be made right with God. People need to repent, and I'm telling you, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one that repents than over 99 that don't need to. So Jesus was emphasizing repentance, telling people, please repent. Now, repentance is a major theme in scripture. I referenced it before, the, the word, the Greek word that's used, there's two words. There's a participle, but it's just a mixture of these two words. There's really two main words that are used for repentance. There's the verb form, repent, and then there's the noun form, repentance. It's the same idea, it's the same root. Metanoia is the noun. Metanoia is the verb because verbs have a different ending. And so it means to change one's mind, to change your mind about something. Now, what's the big deal about changing your mind? What's so great about changing your mind? Um, I have five kids, and they don't all eat the same thing, and I can tell you right now, I don't like it when they change their mind. When I tell everyone we're having chicken nugget sandwiches, I don't want one kid to say, I don't want a chicken nugget sandwich. It happens. It happens. And I get upset. We don't call that repentance in our house. We call that disobedience. (laughs) Not not really. You know, everybody wants something different. But anyway, what's so great about changing your mind, right? I'm a pastor, so I officiate weddings, which means I do premarital counseling, which means I sit with an engaged couple and talk about their wedding. I'm telling you, people change their mind all the time. And not at the greatest moment, either. It's not all a good idea. Sometimes you don't need to change your mind. So what is so great about changing your mind? Well, in the Scripture, when the, when the Bible uses repentance, which does mean to change one's mind, it uses it in context of three things that you need to change your mind about. There are three topics, ideas, words that are used. There are three Ideas that God wants to change your mind about. Now, you could include a fourth one being Jesus, but since the word repent in that sense isn't used as explicitly, I'm not going to use it, but it's, it is implicit in the three words that we're going to use. God does want to change people's mind about his son Jesus, and they want he wants them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. That's why repentance and faith go hand in hand. He wants people to change their mind and then put their faith in Christ. But there are three specific words, three specific categories in the Old and New Testament that are repeated that God wants to change your mind about. He wants you to have a changed mind, and he wants you to continue to grow and continue to be changing your mind about these three things. And all three of them are conveniently present in John chapter 16, verse 8. So when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them he has to leave, he encourages them, telling them, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not just going to leave you out to dry and you're going to be all by yourself. I'm going to send you a comforter, a helper. I'm going to send you one that's going to come alongside and continue to do work in your life. And in John 16, 8, he says, when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world, and he uses three words. He will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and and judgment. These are the three ideas that the Bible is interested in changing our minds. God is interested in changing our minds in these three things. You could change your mind about a million things, but what God wants to do, what we need to have the habit of doing, is changing our mind about these three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. So when he comes, he will convict that word convict means to convince someone of their wrongdoing. Sometimes it's used judicially, like in a, in a, don't think of the court hearings. We have a very formalized court hearing. Back then, it could be elders out a gate that everybody trusts, where if this guy says this is how it needs to be, then that's kind of the final decision unless someone goes rebellious haywire. They want to keep peace. No one wants to have all their stuff burned. And so they had somewhat of an official but not the same pageantry that we do with courts. And so there would be decisions made. And what one side would do is want to convict, not convict like you go to jail, but convict the judge or the elder to believe them about their position, their argument. So you wanted to convince someone that you were right. You wanted to change their mind for them to think like you're thinking. So when Jesus uses this word, they knew that's how this word is used. So he's saying the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to convict you. He's going to convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's going to convince the world the work that he's going to do in our minds, and our hearts, he's going to convince us of thinking one way versus another. That's why conviction and repentance are used together. Because conviction leads to repentance. I mean, how can God get anyone to repent? How can he get anyone to change their mind? Well, first, they have to some way believe that the original thought and path they were on is wrong. They have to feel conviction. That's where the sin comes in. So think of it like someone's posting a large wrong way, do not enter sign. You, you should not go this way. That's where repentance begins. It begins with conviction, primarily conviction uh, about sin. So that's the first category sin. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. God wants to change our mind about sin. One of my favorite examples of this in the Old Testament is King David. If you've been in church for even a short period of time, you've heard about King David. And based on how deep you've gone in that study, you may have learned different things. King David was a man after God's own heart. Ever since he was a boy, he was a war prodigy. God gave him a natural talent and understanding of battle and war. He gave him courage. He had the kind of personality he wasn't afraid to fight a lion or a bear. There's only three people well, there's only two people in the, in the Bible that are referenced to killing a lion with their bare hands. He's one of them. Samson's the other. <laughs> And so David was a war prodigy. He was amazing with strategy and war. He was also politically savvy. He had administrative wisdom based on how he dealt with things and how he was able to build the empire that he built. Solomon did not build the Golden Empire. David did, and then David handed it off to Solomon. Well, you know David's story. He, uh, he ends up, toward the end of his life, uh, one of the worst chapters, I think it's uh, oh, first, second Samuel eleven. I can't remember. Um, it's uh, it's where he he sins with Bathsheba. Well, I'm going to read the psalm that he wrote on, and one of the worst mistakes he's made in his life, one of the worst sins he did. He wrote a psalm. He wrote a song basically to God about this horrible thing that he did. In Psalm fifty-one, verses one through three. In your English Bible, uh, you don't have that first part, probably. Um, th- verse 1 is not the first words in the Hebrew Bible for Psalm 51. Psalm 51, actually, if you read the Hebrew and had to translate it, this is how they trick he- Hebrew students, because Hebrew students sometimes will cheat off their English translations and it doesn't work with Psalms. Um, the first Hebrew words are actually to the choir master, psalm of David, uh, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Speaking of that sinful time, that's how the psalm begins. Uh, David wrote 73 of the 150 psalms uh, that are ascribed to him. Some people think he wrote a couple more. We don't know. But uh, he did write, and it's ascribed to him, a lot of these psalms. And this one he wrote after his, his great sinning with Bathsheba. And this is what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In David's language, there were three different words for what we just call sin, and they all had their own little flavor on it. There was transgressions, iniquity, and sin. You'll see those three English words used in the Old Testament, and they're actually three different Hebrew words. Now, we think of them as all sin, but they all had a different flair to them about what kind of sin. Was it intentional? Was it unintentional? Was it grievous? Was it totally jumping across the line and doing something horrible? They would use words like iniquity and transgression to differ from just the word sin. David, in this psalm, begins with a plea for mercy. Mercy. Because he had all three. If you notice, all three of those words are used in these three verses. His transgressions, his iniquity, his sin, the whole thing. I am guilty. I have it all. Intentional, unintentional, grievous, breaking the law, the whole deal. He knew he was a sinner. But why was it only after Nathan the prophet confronted him? I mean, think about the story. King David, during springtime, when all the kings are supposed to go off to war, which means he was supposed to be out to battle, he stayed home. Now, if you read his story and you look at the, the there was like six vignettes at the end of his story that are flashbacks. It's likely this is when he was a certain age of like, you know what, I've done my dues. He's maybe approaching 40. His guys tell him, listen, we don't want to lose you. You're the king. We'll go out to battle. You stay home. You've dealt with a lot. Uh, You stay here. They ended up killing Goliath's brothers, if you remember the story, or his sons. Some people say the four sons. Uh, Whether you think it's the brothers or the sons, I think it's the sons, but no one cares about that. Anyway, you know, the five stones, Goliath, Goliath had some ugly, big, tall guys that looked just like him, probably his sons. So his guys went off and and fought those battles. Well, during one of those times when he's supposed to be out to battle, he stays home. There is almost nothing more dangerous than a man that is bored and not accountable. That is the worst. And I'm talking about a man that is after God's own heart. A godly man that has fasted, that kept his sword from killing Saul to gain his political power. David was a man after God's own heart, but no man is stronger than temptation. Temptation will come to you, and if you are not accountable, and you're alone, and you're bored, buddy, you better buckle up. The enemy's got you right where he wants you. Well, that's where David was. And he's on his rooftop, and he peers through. Uh, and a woman named Bathsheba was having a ritual cleansing. Uh, Back in their day, blood was considered unclean, and so once a month after a certain period of time, a woman would go through a ritual cleansing so that she was able to go back to the temple. That's what Bathsheba was doing. She was doing what she was supposed to be doing. She was not bathing on a rooftop like everybody says, which is untrue and not common for that day or those people, and it's also not in the scripture. he, he was looking over it because her husband, Uriah, was one of his 30 plus guys. If you look in the list of David's mighty men, Uriah is one of the last ones listed. Um, and actually, his grandfather in law was one of David's best men that helped him gain political power, if you know the story. Anyway, so David peers through, finds this woman. He didn't even know who she is. He probably went to their wedding, but he has no idea who she is. He has to ask the servant who is this lady? And then he tells him, oh, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah the Hittite's wife. And he goes, bring her to me. When a man is bored and he has no accountability, he's capable of anything. He wants what he wants. She comes, takes advantage of the situation. He does. He has, commits great sin. She leaves. After about a month, because remember, she just had her ritual cleaning, which means about four weeks later she's going to have to do this again. She realizes she's not gonna do this again because something is different. I'm no longer needing to have this ritual cleaning, which only means one thing, I'm pregnant. So after about a month, she sends word back through a servant. She doesn't go to him herself. A servant goes to King David, tells him what she said, she's pregnant, David's concern. He sends for Uriah the Hittite, sends a letter to Joab, his commander. Joab's with Uriah, and he tells Joab, uh, "You, you need to send Uriah the Hittite home. Joab's probably scratching his head. Why does he want to send one of our great guys, our leaders out? This is time of war. What's going on? Uriah's probably thinking, oh my goodness, something happened to my wife. Maybe my house is burnt down. I don't know what's going on. Why is the king calling me back home during a time of war? This is unusual. This is what's going on. Remember, there's been a couple of months between the servants going back and forth from David and Bathsheba, which means in the servant parlor at the water fountain, the servants are talking about the communication going back and forth. David and Bathsheba were not talking in person anymore. It says in the scripture they were sending servants. So a servant who's one of these guys, because they had servants left there, goes and gets Uriah. Uriah is probably concerned what's going on. It takes him at least two days to go from where the battle is to where uh, David is, if you look at the geography. He's walking back with the servant thinking, what's, sir, tell me, why, why did the king send for me? And whether the servant kept his mouth shut or told him the truth, the servant knew. And Uriah may have known. He very well might, may have got a thing. Uriah doesn't stay home. Uh, there's a whole debacle there. He won't stay home. If you look at Uriah's one encounter with King David and you read those lines, imagining that Uriah knew, it's a scathing sarcasm about, I would not do this, let alone the king. In that, in that passage where Uriah talks to King David, he never calls King David his master, his king, or his lord. Instead, he talks about his men and being at the war and uh, his commander. He doesn't talk about King David. So Uriah might have known. Either way, he goes home. David p- creates this plan to kill Uriah, put him at the front. Well, Uriah is a leader. He's got friends. If you've been in battle with other guys, that's as close as you're going to get to a human being. Those friendships are, are tighter, tighter than brothers. Joab knows, I can't kill this one guy. So instead, Joab has to send Uriah and all his buddies to the front, to the walls of the castle. They get shot down. Joab sends a servant to go tell King David, this is what happened. King David is furious. furious. We've been war buddies forever. Joab, you should know better. You can't send your guys to the front of the line and get them shot out. What are you, dumb? Why are you w- ruining this war? And then Joab tells the servant to tell King David, and when he gets upset, when the king is angry at this news, tell him, Uriah the Hittite has also died. So Uriah finds out, or David finds out that Uriah had died. He's not, no longer upset with Joab. He tells the servant, hey, go back and tell him everything's fine. You know, this happens in war. People die, people live, no big deal. King David, and that I mean, you read it. That's that's what he said. And uh, King David thinks he got away with sin. Let me let me just ask a simple question. Is it even possible that King David did not have the knowledge that murdering your friend, who has been at battle with you for at least 10 years, according to the chronology, Uriah the Hittite has been with him for a while. Does King David not know that it's against God's law to unjustly murder your friend, to have adultery with his wife? Of course he knows it's a sin. But it doesn't matter what you're thinking up here. There are times when you can be so blind to your own sin, something as grievous as murder and adultery, you could be a man after God's own heart and not even realize what you're really doing. King David does not repent until this happens. Nathan the prophet goes to him, gives him a parable about a man owning sheep, and then he's stealing the one. King David gets upset. That guy ought to die. And Nathan tells him, that man is you. It's only after that that King David realizes his own sin. Not because he didn't understand the law. Not because he didn't go to Sunday school. Not because he didn't know murder was wrong. It's because when you are blind in your own sin... You can be that blind. You can be so blind you don't even realize what you're doing until God convicts you of sin. And the reason why he wants to convict you of sin is because he wants you to repent, and that's what David did. I realize we're taking a long time on point number one, and point number two and three are just kind of, I'll just move through those quickly. But this is the primary reason for repentance. God gifts us with repentance because he wants to change our mind about our own sin. And it doesn't mean that you, oh, there's a new law? I didn't know this was wrong. You can know something's wrong and not even realize it's happening in your own heart. It's happening in your own life. That you could be ruining your life. You could be destroying your family and not even know it. And that's a lesson from King David about repentance. God desires for his people to repent. And sometimes you need something to tragically or strongly convict you and expose your sin and convict you of your own sin. Not a new law, not a new Sunday school lesson, but open eyes to look at my sin. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. The kind of idea where you realize I, I am the one that has sin. What if we prayed for the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin so that we would repent? If we took the next three weeks and you and I committed as brothers and sisters, just because this is our church family, what if we decided this month we're going to begin, we're going to put effort toward it, we're going to pray each week, we're going to take multiple days out of our week to pray, God, convict me of sin so that I can turn so that I can change my mind about what's really happening. Maybe I'm blind to my own sin. Maybe I don't even realize how wrong it is what I'm doing. Maybe it's become a pet sin. It's become, it's become something that I've just ignored. Let's pray together that God would convict us of sin so that we would repent. Repentance is more than remorse or regret. It's not just feeling bad about what we've done. It's that, it's that changing our mind about it and turning to the Lord. I'll give you an example. Um, Do you know that atheists can feel bad about doing wrong things? I've got friends that are non-Christians. I've got people I know, people I care about, that do not love Jesus, they do not hate their sin, they have never made a profession of faith. But they feel really bad, and they have remorse when they've done something wrong. The Bible does not call that repentance. Repentance doesn't just mean I feel bad about it. Repentance goes a step further in, I understand that this sin, I'm changing my mind to think like God. I'm trying to have the thoughts that God are having in the sense of taking his view on sin. This sin results in death. This is bad for me and it's wrong. It's morally wrong and I don't like it and I don't want it. That's what repentance really is. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, here's an example of that. Paul's writing, he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. When you feel bad about doing the wrong thing, but it leads you to, now I'm I'm gonna repent. Repentance is more than feeling bad. It's more than guilt. It's changing your mind about what God says is good and bad, good and evil, and changing your mind about how good or bad or worth it it is in your own life. I don't want this in my life. That's repentance. It leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. You know, the world can regret and remorse about things that's not going to save them. It's not going to help their relationship with God. It's not going to produce holiness, but they can feel bad. God wants something more than that. So God wants to change our minds about sin, and he wants to change our minds about righteousness, When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. That word for righteousness, diakonos, that idea of there's two sides to righteousness. There's righteousness of you are right. I use the word right a lot when I teach on righteousness because it helps me. There are other ways of saying this. Righteousness means you are right with God. You are in right standing with God. Your relationship with him is not broken. You are right before God. Righteousness also means a character of living, that you have biblical character, that you are living righteously, meaning you're doing what is holy and right and good in God's eyes. So it's a how are you living, and it's how your relationship is with God. Those two ideas are both contained in righteousness, and you can't separate them. Uh, because you can't be living like a heathen and feel like you're great with God. That's not how it works. Um, you've got to understand that righteousness comes from God alone. Saving righteousness is only because of his righteousness. Uh, and God wants to convict us, to change our mind, to convince us about true righteousness. Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. These people thought they were righteous, and he wanted to make it explicitly clear, I'm calling you to repentance, and guess what? I don't call righteous people to repentance. I call sinners to repentance, meaning you are sinners. Don't get the wrong idea that I'm calling someone else. No, I'm calling you, and you need to have an understanding that you are a sinner and that you're not righteous. Back then, a lot of people had an, a misunderstanding of God that if they followed certain rules and if other people said that they were good people, that made them good people in God's eyes. And God was like, that's not how it works. That's not what makes you righteous. And Jesus really made that clear to them. Righteousness cannot be our own. In Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, Paul is writing about his Jewish. Brothers and sisters that he loves, but they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So, this is what he writes about these rule, these law abiding Jews. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I want them to be delivered. And you might say, but they're good law abiding Jews. Aren't they in right standing with God? Doesn't God accept them because they obey the law? Aren't they living righteously? Aren't they obeying God's law, making their lives righteous living? Well, no. Paul spent a whole letter explaining that's not how it works. He says, I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He uses that word knowledge on purpose. Peter uses this too. I want you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want your mind to be changed about who Jesus really is, about what righteousness really is, about your own sin, eventually about judgment. He wants to change our mind about what true righteousness is. He says, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. The only way to submit to God's righteousness, to have a right understanding of God's righteousness, is through Jesus, his son. That's the only way you could be made righteous, period. You cannot be righteous outside of Jesus. That's where where righteousness really comes from. Jesus also said in Matthew 5.20 that he told the people, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. These were like the best law abiders out there. They dressed the part, looked the part, talked the part, acted the part. And he told them, your righteousness had to exceed that. Now, if I were one of those farmers, I would have been out there going, dude, how am I going to pass that guy? I mean, he ties his mint and spices. He fasts twice a week. I mean, this guy is a rule follower of all rules. This guy dresses out and never be that. Well, Jesus was explaining to them, their righteousness isn't going to cut it. That's not the kind of righteousness you need. I want to convict you, convince you, change your mind, a knowledge and understanding of what God's righteousness is. That's not how you're made right with God, and that's not what godly living is really about. And so God wants to change our minds about sin and righteousness, and he wants to change our mind about judgment. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know, the Bible tells us that every person is going to die and stand before the judgment. One way that God is going to get you to what the Bible calls repent is to convict you about judgment. You and I are going to be judged for our actions. Now, if you're a Christian, you might be thinking, I'm not going to be judged because Jesus paid for my sins. and I'm going to get to heaven and all is going to be well. and God's going to be like, good and faithful servant. You're good to go. That is part of the story, but that's not the whole story. If you read, you realize you are going to be judged for everything you say and do and don't do. What does that mean? How are we going to be judged before the great white throne? How is God going to expose what we did and reward us for righteous living? That's the judgment. And God wants to not discourage you. He wants to encourage you. He wants you to know A judgment is coming that ought to sober you, that ought to humble you, and because there's reward for righteous living, he wants judgment to encourage you. Judgment is coming. God wants to convict you of this judgment so that you no longer think, oh, my sin is fine, even if I'm a Christian. I'll get into heaven by the skin of my teeth. That's not the right attitude to have. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote about that kind of attitude. The Hebrew author, the Hebrews author, wrote about that attitude, And basically, if you have an attitude like that, it's questionable whether you're saved. You should not have a confidence about salvation. And so God wants to convict us about judgment in the sense of don't stay in your sin. Don't stay in on your path. Stop going the wrong direction. Feel that conviction so that your mind will be changed and you will no longer look at it as okay. He wants to convict us about judgment. I have other verses, but it's in the Bible. Uh, Read Luke chapter 13. Uh, I I really want the the band to come up and, and lead us in a song of worship. This is meant to be a response, a song of response and a song of prayer. Would you take a moment as we sing together to really deal with the Lord and say, God, I want to be a Christian, a person of repentance, that you are changing my mind about sin, righteousness, and judgment so that I would be more like you. That is the goal. And let me pray while they get set up. Heavenly Father, we love you. You're so good to us. Your word is so... It's, it helps us understand what righteousness is. It trains us in righteousness. It helps us know what our sin is and where we're going wrong. And, and it corrects us and rebukes us your word is, is such a gift to us. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. How you come alongside your word to expose what sin is, what righteousness is. We know the end. We know judgment is coming and we're, we're humbled before you. We pray that you would convict us and that you would help us to be a people of repentance so that we would be more like you so that other people would come to know how good, righteous, holy living in is and how destructive sin is. Help us to be light and salt in that way. And this month, we dedicate this month to growing in our, our habit of repentance. We pray all this in Jesus' name.